I'm going to make, I think, a pretty, maybe a pretty bold statement. I think that all, all of the problems that we bring upon ourselves in life happen because we think we can handle situations without God. Or we think we can do it on our own. All the problems we bring upon ourselves happen because we think we have it under our control. Just some questions to ask. What if we lived our lives as if we are dependent on God for everything? What if we really believe that apart from faith, dependence, reliance, it's impossible to please God? What if God wants us to actually live and walk by faith always? I think we can test this even right now in our lives. You, you can test yourself right now. Just ask yourself, how many things in your life do you think you can do without God? Practically speaking, in your day-to-day -day life, how do you act? What are the things in your life that you think you can just do on your own and you've got it under control? I would even encourage you, even while I'm talking, if you take notes, just start writing down things that you think, I got this, I got this, I got this, and you don't really think about God in those things. Now, you might look at those questions, you go, yeah, right, yeah, exactly, I know, we need to live and walk by faith always. I know that apart from faith, it's impossible to please God, but what does it look like, practically, to live by faith? What is, what is it... What does someone who walks by faith do? How is it revealed? I think that as we've been going through Genesis and looking at the life of Abram, God has been unveiling lessons of what living by faith looks like. And as we enter into Genesis 16, I think we're reminded again of a psalm that I brought up a month, month and a half ago in another situation in Abram's life, and it was Psalm 37, where we read these words, Trust in the Lord, and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. I mean, we who trust Jesus for our life and hope and salvation, we who trust Jesus as our Lord and believe that he reigns and is coming again, we're not to live in fear because it tends only to evil. Instead, we are to be a people who trust the Lord and through that trust, live godly lives. We're to dwell in the land, which I think, for modern context, what that means is we are to live in the lives that God has given to us for his glory. Because he says, befriend faithfulness. I can't, I can't necessarily change other people or things, but I can, by God's grace, be faithful to him. And we're to delight in the Lord. And not live in fear. But I believe that we can't do any of these things unless trust comes first. Trust in the Lord, do good. If you skip the trust in the Lord, you're not going to do good. If you skip the trust in the Lord, you're not going to befriend faithfulness. If you skip the trust in the Lord, you're going to be full of anger and you're going to be full of anxiety. We can't 
mistrust. And this is actually what I think we see in Genesis 16. We see Abram and Sarai, and they revert back to faithlessness. And then we see, as a result of their faithlessness, they end up abusing and using someone else because they're living on the basis of fear and not on faith. And yet, what we see in Genesis 16 is this beautiful testimony of faith that comes through the abuse. A testimony that Abram and Sarai ought to learn from. And if we remember the original audience who is receiving this letter, I believe they ought to learn from this testimony as well. Who's the original audience? Remember? Wandering Israel. As they're in the desert. And they should be learning from this individual. What does it mean to live by faith? What does it look like to trust the Lord when you're in the wilderness after having been afflicted? This woman, Hagar, and the testimony that God puts for her life points to the power and goodness of the Lord himself. And so with that understanding, the main idea of the sermon today is that believers should pray to and submit to the Lord who fulfills his promise. Trusting the Lord looks like praying and submitting, believing that God fulfills his promises. The first expression of faith, as the scriptures teach us, is prayer. And so we see this even in this story and in this scenario. This is what the Lord teaches, I believe, Abram, Sarai, Hagar, the Israelites, and us. So we're going to jump right in. And the first point today is believers should. Now, when I say believers should here, I'm, I'm starting with the first six verses of Genesis 16. Believers should, but in these first six verses, they don't. Okay? So let's just look at verses 1 through 6 together and let's read it together. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now, if you were here the last couple of weeks, you heard what took place in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, Abram presents his questions and his concerns to the Lord. He says, God, we, I, have, I have no child of my own. Am I going to have to give the inheritance to my servant? And, and what does God say? No, I promise you, you're going to have your own biological child. And then Abram's also questioning about the land. Where is his family going to live someday? And God promises this land. God goes to such a degree as to go to a covenant ceremony 
Where if you remember, the animals' bodies are cut in half and, and God's presence goes through those bodies to symbolize if he doesn't keep up this covenant, then may what happened to the animals happen to him. He's as good as dead if he doesn't follow through. And God emphasizes with Abram, only he can be the one to make Sarai pregnant. Only he can be the one that can give this land. Abram can't fulfill it. And now we come into chapter 16 and it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This word now here doesn't mean that this immediately follows what took place in chapter 15. It just means that at some point in time, this scenario happened. So what's happening here? We're told the problem right in verse 1. Sarai hasn't gotten pregnant. And they've been in Canaan for a total of 10 years. God's promised a child. Where is it? It seemed like God was in a rush to get them out of the city they lived in. And now it's been 10 years, and she's still not pregnant. Now, we know also by the age that we're given of Abram at the end of this chapter that Sarah is in her 70s. So it's not looking very promising that she's going to have a biological child. Do we get that? What are they going to do? Where's God? Why isn't God acting have you ever been in situations where you felt stuck between a rock and a hard place? Have you ever been in situations where you feel like God is calling you to do something, but there doesn't seem to be any good options? Any of you? This is, this is where Sarai is. We're supposed to have a child? And it doesn't seem like that's going to happen through me. And so Sarai gives words of response to Abram. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, his wife. Now, right now, I think we all want to shake our heads and go, are you kidding me? No. What are you doing? Abram, no. But instead of looking with eyes of condemnation over Abram and Sarah, I think we ought to remember that when the scriptures are writing scenarios like this, it's writing it in such a way to connect us with those people. I am no better than Abram or Sarai, and you aren't either. Now, you might want to be quick to say, well, hold on a second. I wouldn't be that bad. Okay, but let's just get rid of the word that. We are all, we all do bad, Right? When we get stuck between the rock and the hard place, we often try to merge God's promises with our schemes, and then we try to justify ourselves into thinking we're actually obeying God. I'm going to say that again. That was a long statement. When we're in situations like this, we often try to merge God's promises with our schemes, and then we try to justify ourselves into thinking we're actually obeying God. This is what I think Sarai is doing here. Now you look at this and say, this is a weird, horrible, horrible situation. What, what, what kind of solution is this? Right, it's weird and wrong. At the same time, we know of ancient documents where this was actually put into law. Hammurabi's law code has this in it, that if a wife couldn't get pregnant, then the servant of the wife could be taken by the husband. And then if she gets pregnant, then the wife gets to raise that child under her name. 
This was, this was done in the ancient law code. It was a cultural thing. And so it wasn't a totally foreign thought that Sarai just came up with, all right? Now, by the way, don't look at that and go, oh, it was a cultural thing, you know, so it's not as bad. And there's plenty of things in our culture today that if I did it, you would say, that's bad, right? Yeah? Just want to make sure. So just because it's cultural doesn't mean, oh, it's not as bad because, you know, the other people in the culture did it too. No, no, no. Sarai, in her desperation, thinks it's okay to turn to her own schemes and cultural norms. And what's even, I think, more concerning is that Abram assents to this. And the reason why I think it's more concerning that Abram assents to this is because Abram is the one who heard directly from God in the covenant ceremony, right? Promising to him that there was going to be a child. What should Abram have said to Sarai? No, this is not what God has promised. He should have been leading Sarai with the word of the Lord, but he doesn't. Does that not sound kind of like another situation between two people named Adam and Eve? And actually, you should be thinking about Adam and Eve here because Moses, as he's writing, he uses similar words to the temptation in the garden as in this scenario as well. Instead of Abram leading and taking the responsibility, he listens to the sinful suggestion like Adam did with Eve and then just like Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, so we see in this text that Sarai takes her servant and gives her to Abram. Clearly, this wasn't God's intention. This is not God's will. And this is a lack of faith. She's living on the basis of fear, and it's leading to evil. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Instead of trusting in the Lord, doing good, dwelling in the land, befriending faithfulness, they're trusting themselves, doing evil, living in anxiety, and befriending unrighteousness. Yet probably, I'm going to suggest, probably in their own minds, they're thinking, we're just trying to do what we think we need to do in order to fulfill what God says. We're just trying to obey God. I think that actually might have been on Sarah's mind because you realize Sarah begins her suggestion with a theological statement. Did you look down at the text again? Verse 2, Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has what? You can say it out loud. What? Prevented me from bearing children. She's making an absolute statement. Declaring. God has prevented me from having children. So what's the solution? we got to come up with something else. Because I, we're supposed to have children under your name. I just can't give it to you. So clearly in her mind, God has a different way of giving Abram offspring. And what I want us to see here is how dangerous it is to jump to conclusions about God that God patently says is untrue. How many times in your life have you said something like, well, I know God says he's good, but, or I know God says he's fill in the blank, but. Anybody ever say that before? Just raise your hands if you have. It's dangerous 
Because then we start building our lives on a false pretense. This is not true. Yes, God has prevented Hagar for this time, but she's going to have a child. You know, we human beings will jump to these conclusions. I think it, 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 one reason why we jump to these conclusions is because we are so into efficiency and speed and we just want what we want when we want it. And I continue to learn in my life that God really does not value efficiency like we do. And often in the Bible, so often in the Bible, he shows us he values waiting. Wait. 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 Why? Why? Because God doesn't just want to give us things. It's actually in the midst of waiting that God reveals who he is to us. And then we get to know him. Because what does it matter if we get the things but we don't have God, right? But if we have God and we don't have the things, we have everything. But Sarai and Abram trust themselves. They forsake God's way for their own way. And just like Abram was in a panic when there was a famine in the land and he went down to Egypt, so Sarai is in fear and forsakes God's way and then it leads to more problems and complications. Look at, let's just reread verses 4 through 6. And he, Abram, went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she, Hagar, fled from her. So Hagar gets pregnant, and after getting pregnant, looks on contempt with Sarai. Now this word for contempt is actually an extremely strong term in the Hebrew. Hagar has elevated herself in her own mind over Sarai because she got pregnant. She has a child. And so she's looking down upon Sarai. And actually, by the way, in ancient law documents where this was practiced, that would have been considered an injustice for the slave or for the servant to treat the master's wife like that. Okay? Sarai does not expect that if Hagar gets pregnant, she's going to do that. Okay? But... You know, we always ought to remember that whenever we connive in our own schemes and go against God's design, it, it never works out the way we planned it. Sin always takes us in different directions. We're not in control. And so Sarah confronts Abram. She's experiencing consequences of this sin. And so what she does is she confronts Abram and says, the wrong done to her is to be on you. And then she calls on the Lord to judge between the two of them. Now, right here, some of you will get what I'm saying when I say this. Some of you may not. But I feel like right here in this moment, I have been watching one of those crazy TLC programs where you're in shock and disgust that people actually live and think this way. And I want to say to Sarai, are you kidding me? 
This was your idea. You, you were the one that wanted the plan, and now you're trying to shift blame to Abram. You're crazy. And then I remember, oh, wait, we're always blame shifters, right? Adam and Eve did it from the beginning. Well, no, 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 it was her. No, 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 it was this. And that's what Sarai's doing here. And, and we love to blame shift. Again, I think one of the reasons we love to blame shift is because when we experience the consequences of our own sin, if we can shift the blame to somebody else, then we can at least be not as guilty as them. And sometimes we assume that if we're not as guilty as them, then we're not guilty. Have you ever felt that way before? And you push somebody else, no, 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 it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. They're so bad, they're so awful, and now you can feel better about yourself because you've shifted the blame. But is it true? Is it true that if you're not as guilty, that you're not guilty? Is it true? No, that's not true. So a question for you, I mean, are you living this way right now? Maybe there's some marital issues that are taking place. Maybe it's between people you work with or members of your family. And I think we all ought to be asking, Lord, am I trusting in my own schemes? Or am I truly trusting you? Am I seeking to just defend myself by putting somebody else down? Or am I seeking to honor you and live humbly before you? Now, Abram, he doesn't, he doesn't ask those questions. He doesn't respond that way. And Abram ought to, by the way. Yes, Sarah's was wrong, right? Her suggestion was wrong. But Abram's response shouldn't be, hey, it was your, you told me to do it. Abram should have said, you're right. I'm ultimately responsible as the husband and the one to whom God gave the covenant. I should have stopped this. But he doesn't do that. What does Abram do? Hey, do whatever you want with her. She's not my wife. She's your servant. And this is a horrifying statement. I mean, really, it's a horrifying statement. Because imagine if you are Hagar. She's just a piece of property. And think about Psalm 37. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Here we see evil results. At the end of verse 6, we're told that Sarai deals harshly with Hagar. And this word for harshly in the Hebrew is actually a word that is later on used of the Israelites' treatment as slaves in Egypt. You get that? So the people who are the original audience reading this should start to feel a connection with Hagar because Hagar then runs into the wilderness to flee the affliction. But I can't help but be reminded of God's word to Abram earlier on when God says, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the exact opposite is happening here. Because where's, where's Hagar from? Egypt. More than likely, Hagar joined them when Abram and Sarai were in Egypt in the last panic attack that Abram had over the famine. And she should be blessed being in Abram's household. She's not. She's abused and she's used. 
in Abram's household. Instead of trusting the Lord, Abram and Sarah trusted in themselves and their plans. And now Hagar is not blessed. She flees into the desert. And again, the Israelites who are reading this should relate with Hagar because the mother and father of the Israelites abused, afflicted an Egyptian. But then what happens next in this scenario is, I think, shocking and beautifully comforting. God works in Hagar's life to lead her to submit to the Lord and to, I believe, preach reality to Abram and Sarai and to the Israelites who are reading the story and by extension to us as well to actually really see what does faith look like. If I truly trust the Lord, how do I respond? And we see believers should pray to and submit to the Lord who fulfills his promises. Now I say this because it's really important in this text. God reveals himself in certain ways. And in God revealing himself in certain ways to Hagar, I believe he is showing Hagar and Abram and Sarai what they ought to have done. Because God shows himself in a specific way. So you might not see the word pray. Well, we don't see the word pray in this text. But we do see the word hear many times. God is, why is God showing himself as a hearing God? Why? It's to impel or compel the people to actually say, well, then we should pray to him since he's a hearing God. So what we have here in this scenario is Hagar flees. Sarai and Abram have sinned against the Lord. Evil has wreaked havoc. Now what? Well, what we've learned from the beginning of Genesis is God is a God who brings order from chaos, right? There's chaos here. And it shouldn't surprise us that God's going to bring about beauty Remember in last week, we saw this covenant promise. And when God makes this covenant promise with Abram, that promise is not dependent on whether or not Abram obeys. It's not dependent on how good Abram is. It's dependent on God himself. And God's going to keep this. So let's read verses 7 through 12. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. Now, who in the world is this angel of the Lord? There's, there's a lot of speculation. I'm not going to go into all the details on this. There's different views that people have. If you want to know more of what I think about this angel of the Lord, you can go on Ventura's website and type in the angel of the Lord come in the flesh. Okay? And that should give you a hint on who I think the angel of the Lord is. I actually believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus, or before Jesus took on flesh. And the reason why I think that 
is because many times when the angel, not just an angel of the Lord shows up, but when the angel of the Lord shows up, people worship the angel. And we know in other passages of scripture, when angels are worshiped, they say, no, 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 don't worship me, worship God. They stop the people in the false worship. I think this is what Hagar understands. She knows the Lord is talking to her. And notice how the Lord draws her heart out. He asks where she's come from and where she's going. And she responds, I'm fleeing from Sarai. And then comes this, oh man, almost what sounds like a completely insensitive statement. The angel of the Lord tells her to return to Sarai. Are you kidding me? Seriously? Go back to her? That sounds insane. Do you get why I feel that way? And yet, the angel of the Lord gives promises to Hagar that would compel her to submit and obey. He says that she's going to have much offspring as well. But what really what's really emphasized here is that the angel of the Lord says that he's listened to her affliction. He's heard her affliction. He knows the pain that's deep down in her soul. Notice, the Lord does not downplay her pain. The Lord does not say, well, I mean, you slept with Abram too, so I mean, like, you're part and parcel in all of this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. That's what we read earlier in the service. He saves the crushed in spirit. And the Lord has heard Hagar, which I imagine causes Hagar to believe that the Lord will take care of her if she goes back. She actually says that in the verses. He takes care of me. She's convinced that the Lord will take care of her. Now, the Lord also prophesies that her son is going to be a wild donkey of a man, and that prophecy essentially means that he's going to, he's going to fight for his territory. He's going to be away from certain people groups and have to fight to get wherever he lives. Now, in all of this, that the Lord says to Hagar, he affirms that he sees her and he has heard her and therefore he cares for her. And so then he tells Hagar to name her son Ishmael, which means God hears. I think that's really important for us to get. Because through the angel of the Lord's interaction with Hagar, I actually believe he's confronting Abram and Sarai on what they ought to have done. The Lord hears us in our affliction. The Lord hears us in our pain. Do you think Sarai was experiencing pain over childlessness? Do you think so? Yeah. 70 some years of her life. What should she have done? Pray, Sarai, the Lord hears. You didn't go to the Lord who hears. And the same comes to us. Are we praying and laying our anxieties before him? Will we pray to him? Will we cry out to him? And will we trust him? Or will we simply judge God on the basis of our circumstances? That's what Sarai did. She said, God's prevented me from getting pregnant. 
So instead of trusting and praying, she schemes. What about you? Do you know God sees you? Do you know God hears you? Do you know God can take care of you? Now you might say, well, I've tried that, but my circumstances still haven't changed. Have you ever, have you ever felt that before? I've tried God, I've tried to pray, and nothing's changing. Well, you know what? Hagar's cir- circumstances didn't change either. Hagar didn't get that change of circumstances, but she did get a vision of God. And that vision of God melted her heart and led her to trust the Lord. And that trust is revealed through her submission. She went back to the very person and place that she was fleeing from. And that's, by the way, that's not because she trusted Sarai and Abraham. Those people, great because she trusted the Lord. He's great. He will take care of me. This is important for all of us to remember. We human beings, we can hurt other people and we can be hurt by other people. If I were to say, how many of you have ever been hurt by a person? Everybody's hands would be raised. And if I were to say, how many of you have hurt somebody else? Everybody's hands would be raised. I know I've hurt people by my actions, and it burdens me to think about it. And I've also been hurt by other people before. And sometimes I think, why do I keep getting in relationships with people? We all just hurt each other. But do I get into relationships with people because I trust people or trust myself? Shouldn't be. It should be because I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord that he's good and he does his will through, through weak, frail people to accomplish his plan. God sees, God hears, God takes care of us. And so we can pray and submit to him whatever he calls us to do. We can trust the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness, delight ourselves in the Lord as he gives us his desires. We can refrain from anger and forsake wrath. We cannot worry because it tends only to evil. This is what we see in Hagar. She trusts the Lord. She trusts the Lord. And she submits. She communes, she prays with, she talks to the Lord. That's what faith looks like. And so then in verse 13 through 16, we get application or implications from the text. Verses 13 through 16, we read, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word so in verse 13 tells us the conclusion of the interaction. This is Hagar's response, which ought to be Abram's and Sarah's response. She claims that the angel of the Lord is actually the Lord who spoke to her. She says that God is a God of seeing. By the way, what I find to be tremendously encouraging and comforting in this is there is no other person 
in all the scriptures who gives a name to God. Hagar is the only person in all of scripture. And, and just, just to extend that, in all of the Near Eastern ancient manuscripts, there is nobody who names a divine being. And here we have an abused, traumatized slave woman. She names. She has felt and known the God who sees. So the implication is that we see that the Lord seeing Hagar settles her heart. And isn't that ultimately what we long for? I mean, we don't want people to just notice us. We want to be seen. And, and, and I would even say that, that I think that what we would really long for is for someone to be able to look at all the ugliness and the pain and still love us and still pursue us and still care for us and not afflict us. The Lord sees Hagar. She is known and loved by the Lord and her heart is settled. And by the way, I say her heart is settled because what we don't see in this text is her saying, yeah, if you saw me, why did you let that happen? She also doesn't say, if you really cared, why don't you keep my son from being a wild donkey of a man? That's a lot of times what we go through, right? And that's fine to ask those questions to the Lord and take those prayers to him. But she is so melted by the love of God in seeing her that she trusts in the midst of those tensions. I don't know why, I don't know why, but I know who. And so her heart is settled. She doesn't have to resort to fear. It's faith. And Hagar maintains a reminder of God's seeing. She's out in the wilderness, and she has this well here out in the wilderness, and she names the well. And the, the meaning of that, that name is belonging to the Lord, the seeing one. She belongs to the God who sees her. That's who she belongs to. And that well is to always be a reminder. By the way, I think, again, this should speak to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, right? Does God see? Does God care? Does God know? Yes. If he saw one Egyptian servant out in a wilderness, he sees you, Israel. He cares for you. She trusts the Lord, and she has this continual reminder. And then another implication of this is that Abram names her son. Did you notice that? It doesn't say Hagar names her son. It says Abram names her son, which I actually then think this means she went back and she preached the message of what God did for her. And she told Abram. And Abram, at least to some degree, if not fully, affirms what happens, and he names the child Ishmael. He believes this is what the Lord says to do. And that name, Ishmael, means God hears. And so Ishmael, I believe, is a continual reminder to Abram and Sarai. The next time they're tempted to fear, God's, God hears. Pray. 
God hears. Pray. God sees. He cares for you. And so what's the implication for us then? We're told in the scriptures that everything in the scriptures finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And what's really interesting is in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 4, we're told about Sarai and Hagar. And the Apostle Paul, when he brings up Sarai and Hagar, he says, you can think about this allegorically here, that Hagar's children, it's the children of slavery, and Sarai's children are the children of freedom. And that's the reason why Sarai's children are the children of freedom is because through Sarai was going to come who? Jesus, the serpent crusher, the Messiah. And he's the one that frees, frees the slave people. And what Paul's argument is that we're all born into slavery. We're all born sinners. Not not meaning that we're all born murdering people. We're all born not wanting to worship God. We're all born living in our own schemes, in our own ways. And Jesus is the one who sets us free from that. What's really intriguing to me is there is a scenario in Jesus' ministry that sounds so similar to Hagar. Just think about it. Maybe some of you are tracking with me. The woman at the well. That woman who is used by men. She just wanted to be seen and cared for and not traded around. And Jesus sees her. The angel of the Lord came in the flesh and he saw her and he talked to her and she realized who he is. He's the one who sets sinners free. He's the one who sees me in all my brokenness and he loves me and he makes me whole. He sees me and he takes care of me. And when Jesus declares how he is the refreshment for her soul, she receives that and what does she do? She goes back into the city and she tells all the people what the Lord has done for her. Jesus is the serpent crusher. Jesus is the seed who sets us free and he sets us free How can he do that? Because he actually doesn't just hear of our affliction. He takes our affliction on himself. You know, we read from Psalm 34 earlier in the service, and we skipped some verses in that psalm. And I want to show you one of the verses we skipped. Well, we read this one. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Then here's verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The New Testament says that verse 20 was fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. Jesus took your affliction, sinner's afflictions, on himself. He took it to the degree that the Bible says he became sin. And he was condemned for our sinfulness. And then he died. And yet, God still kept him in the grave. And Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, conquering both sin and death. And so now anyone who turns to him finds refreshment for their soul and healing. If you turn to him for forgiveness, you're reconciled with God and made whole. And not only did Jesus take your affliction, but now the Bible says he gives his righteousness to you. If Jesus lived, died, and rose again for us, 
how much more will he take care of us now? Do you trust Jesus? Have you trusted him? If you have questions about that, there's going to be people up here more than willing at the end of the service ready to talk to you about that. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted Jesus, the Bible says, so then walk in that faith. Pray. Submit. Pray. Submit. Pray. Submit. Pray. Submit. He's the God who hears. He's the God who cares. He's the God who can give you the comfort. Trust is the ongoing reality of the believer. Are you living in fear or faith? Are you praying and submitting? Do you know the God who sees, hears, and comforts? He fulfills all his promises. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercies and your kindnesses to us. Thank you for the realities of who Jesus is and who you are and how you minister to us and care for our souls. Father, I pray that you would compel us to truly reach out to you and not trust our own schemes, but to rejoice in you and find comfort and grace in who you are. We need you, God. We cannot, we cannot trust you. We cannot do good. We can't befriend faithfulness. We can't delight in you without you showing us yourself and drawing us with your loving arms. So please do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.